Uh, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so you can turn there, and for those who are through grade 4, if they want to be uh, dismissed to uh, junior church at this time, up through grade 4, you can do that. If you want to keep them with you, feel free to do that as well. This would be a big a joy to have them. We love kids. We have lots of them, and we are grateful for them, so feel free to keep them with you if you'd like to, or send them down. God's plan for a healthy church, study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In particular, the glory of the gospel, as we picked up in chapter 3, verse 6, all the way through verse 18, the glory of the gospel, the old and the new covenant. It's been a rich study for us. We've taken some time with it because it is so foundational to our understanding of who we are in Christ and which springs into our bold speech, which we'll see in just a minute. But let's read for take, uh, uh, the sake of time. Let's turn to our passage. Let's read it, picking up in verse 12. And we'll read until the end of the section. I'm going to be reading for the New American Standard. You can find that around you in the chairs. If, or just read the one that you have that you memorize and uh, study each day. And we'll give you verse cues. We can stay together. And I want to, as you turn there, I, I meant to say this right when I came up. Um, many of you know our, our uh, Wana missionaries, Wally and Wendy Shields. Well, Wally uh, suffered a, a severe health issue yesterday and inherited his future with the Lord this morning. And so I know that's a surprise for some of you. We're, I know, uh, I've known Wally for many, many years, uh, back when he was over at Heritage, and he was a WANA commander there and just did such a marvelous job. And Awana in this region has really flourished under he and Wendy's leadership. And many of you know him. He's been here tra- and doing training and all of that. But he, he was ushered into the eternal kingdom yesterday and inherited all that he had laid up there. And that's been a lot, I would think, as if I think about all the sacrifice they made. So be in prayer for Wendy. Uh, she was, of course, solid in faith as always, and I was told that she sat beside him, held his hand, and said, it's okay if you need to go. And so it was a joy to know that he got to go and be with the Lord. And, um, you know, nobody, nobody suspects that that will be tomorrow, but it very well could be. And so we make sure we're right with him, and we walk with him as we understand it, and then we inherit when he's ready. So let's read in our copy of God's Word, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Picking up, it says, Therefore, having such a hope... We use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away, verse 14. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ, verse 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, verse 16. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, as we worked our way through this passage, of course, and as we, is our habit, verse by verse, through the books of the Bible, we've gone through 1 Corinthians, we've now got into chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, and we have seen in, in uh, ch- starting at verse 6 of chapter 3, all the way through now verse 18, we have been noting the marks of the new covenant uh, because of their significance to our foundation. It's not just something we wanted to gloss over or read quickly. The passage itself doesn't lend itself initially to just kind of falling off the vine, if you will, and so we've taken some time to lay a foundation to make that. Uh, that transition into this passage smooth. And so as we've gone through it now and we get to this point, we begin to put together the things that Paul has uh, so carefully laid down as he's revealed his heart to, his, to these people. And so uh, we saw that our, our mark there in, in verse 12, at the passage we just started with, says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Now, last time we looked at that at length, we saw that's our mark uh, of the new covenant number six. It brings hope assure, and a sure expectation of a secure future. And I was reminded of that today as, as Joe told me that Wally had uh, gone into that future. We have a great hope. Uh, there's a hope of the completion of the ministry of righteousness. Uh, the Lord has done his work in our heart and imputed righteousness to us. And so positionally before the Lord, we are looked at as righteous. Of course, the, the practical part is to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so the practical part, as we battle with the new man against the old, uh, against the flesh, uh, we have that difficulty, but someday there's the hope of a completion of that ministry of righteousness, the hope of forgiveness found in the new covenant in Jesus' blood. That's the hope of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So he refers to a hope that he's talked about, and it's vast. And so we've looked at a number of those things now uh, as we've gone through. This is a hope of an expectation 
here particularly of eternal life. God's presence, the close fellowship of Jesus, that's our hope as well, right? And uh, the rewards he has planned, everything good and everything right and everything true that will be present in the eternal state, all of that's our hope. We have a great hope. All the surprises and all the beauty that are a part of his nature that we don't know yet, and we can't even imagine how wonderful that will be, those surprises. And I, you know, my boys and I have had this conversation many times, and, and not very long ago, you know, the God who created this world in its, and now in its fallen state, it contains with it so much wonder and beauty and glory. And, and, you know, if you were out in the woods yesterday as I would, you know, again, you're just reminded of the marvel of the creation and all the, the blessings that he had formed. And even in its cursed state, even in its state of groaning, contains so many wonderful things. And so we fully expect uh, that there are going to be surprises and beauty and things that are part of the eternal state that we don't know about yet, but that, because that's his nature, um, that will be what will be there. So that's part of our hope, and we looked at that last time, and, and we saw this hope from First Peter is guaranteed on the basis of Christ's work. So it's not guaranteed on whether or not you're doing a great job of walking in the Spirit all the time. It's not based on any of your efforts. It never was, and it's not based, its security is not based on whether or not you're consistent and the level of your consistency. It's based on the secure work of Christ. Your faith is bound to what his work is, and so Christ's work on our behalf guaranteed to those who confess and believe by grace through faith. And so Paul says we have this hope, then it springs right into this hope protected by the power of God, your security as a believer in Jesus is unfailing, and it springs right into that second, that next mark, that seventh mark of the new covenant, and that is this hope is the foundation off which we have confident witness. So the whole idea behind that is, is that if we have this great hope, uh, that should be exciting to us. We shouldn't forget in the day-to-day -day grind of the secure hope that we have in Christ, which is the foundation off which we are excited to witness to other people. So if that hasn't excited you, and that hasn't stirred you, and from time to time you go back to it and you're reminded of it, and you're just like, this is just so marvelous, that should all, all right, at, right away prompt you to give you uh, an opportunity as you, the Lord provides it to share that secure hope uh, with someone else. And so Paul says we have confident speech, the boldness of speech, because we know uh, what we believe and what we have in Christ. And so that excitement and expectation makes its way into our witness. So we carry out the Great Commission. See, So it's not just, though, this ho-hum hope. It's not this, this downer hope. It's not just this drag hope. This is this wonder and glory and hope of this expectation of the completion of the ministry of righteousness and forgiveness found in the new covenant in Jesus' blood and the hope of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the expectation of eternal life and the fellowship of God and with Christ. All that kind of stuff makes its way into this bundle of hope uh, that we can then use as a springboard to share. If you're not excited about that, beloved, no one else in the world will be, that's for sure. And so that's a joy, and I know that you are, and so uh, we'll continue in that. Now, we saw in verse 13, look there if you would, your copy of God's Word. Um, verse 13, we are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. And we saw last time, that's our eighth mark. Unlike the, unlike the new covenant, the old covenant was veiled. That was our mark. The old covenant was veiled. The law of Moses um, doesn't lend itself to hope. The law of Moses didn't lend itself to boldness. So Paul says the new covenant's not like the old. And we looked at that at length last time. I spent most of our time here, but so we won't do it today. But the old was veiled because it was intense. We looked at that. Um, Moses, of course, standing in the presence of the Lord, his face glowed. His, his leaders couldn't look at his face. It was so intense, and that was just a reflection of what remained of his time with the Holy God. So that holiness, uh, which brought death, if it was understood correctly, it's intense, right? The holiness of God and his law, which brings death to those uh, who look at it and can't keep it. And the, holy, uh, the old was also veiled as to its clarity. So it's veiled to its intensity. It was veiled to its clarity. Like trying to see Moses' face, I think Paul's, Paul's uh, his, his, uh, his thought here is that uh, the myriad of laws and all of that that were all part of the Old Testament and all part of the Old Covenant, they were very, they were very unclear as to their meanings. So hard to be hopeful, so hard to be bold in the Old Covenant. Just so much holiness and perfection and without avail, they're deadly and consuming, and there's just so much murkiness in the understanding of, of the, the old covenant, all these laws and these ceremonies and the rituals, and they all had connection, but they weren't always clear. And so even those who wrote it, we looked at last time, remember, uh, diligently sought to seek who they were talking about and when they were going to talk about it. And so they found out it was, they didn't get the answer, but they found out it wasn't for them, it was for someone else. And so there's this murkiness there with, uh, and this veiledness because of its intensity, veiledness because it's hard to understand, 
And so Paul says we're not like Moses. And then drawing an illustration from ancient Israel to this very day, Paul says in verse 14, look there if you're in your copy of God's word. He says, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unfulfilled. So that brings it right into Paul's day. He says, listen, just like it was then, it hasn't changed for some even today. And just to, and verse 15 goes with it, just really solidifies the observation. Verse 15 says, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. And the law and the ceremonies and the rituals and the feasts and the sacrificial system and everything that was represented by the old covenant, if it, it was veiled and it wasn't clear and the people couldn't know about the symbolism, they couldn't know about the reality and, and there, there's this problem Paul points out, some Jews are still there. The problem they had at first was that these things were veiled and they were hard to understand and there was an intensity there and a scariness about the holiness of God and, and, uh, and the Jews were stiff-necked and they were also hard-hearted and they didn't obey and they wouldn't obey and they wouldn't believe and the problem we have now is just hardness in unbelief. So Paul says they're, they're hard and they're unyielding and, and the majority continued in unbelief uh, in the land and, and they wouldn't hear the words of the prophets and they killed everybody who brought the message of the Lord to them and they wouldn't believe what God said and now they have been sovereignly hardened and Paul used to be in that group. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here because we looked at this issue last week, but there's this great illustration of unbelief and the veil that covers over the hearts of the Jew until this day uh, that's found in Acts 13. 27. I'd like you to turn there. Just hold your finger here. We won't be here long. But Acts 13, 27, we didn't have time to look at that last week. We ran out of time. But this is one I don't want you to miss because it has a lot to do with the veil that's over the heart, even to this day. It has a lot to do with the understanding of all of that uh, and the preaching that went on in the, in the New Covenant and the sovereign hardening that went on and the reasons why that sovereign harden, hardening happened. But here Paul is speaking in a synagogue in Pisidia Antioch. It's in Acts 30, 13, verse 27 is where we're going to pick up. And he is recounting the story of the rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish leaders. And listen to his words. And as I always say, as he makes friends and influences people. So his first words are, O oh, leaders of Jerusalem, your best life is now. Is that what he says? So exciting to be you, right? No, Paul, Paul never starts that way. He just says the truth, right? So verse 27, it says this, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him that's talking about Jesus, nor the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. So catch, catch this. So this. He's speaking in the synagogue, okay? So he's got Jewish listeners. And he's right away, he's right into them, okay? Right up in their sweet tea. In other words, the veil of their unbelief obscured the reality of the situation so much that they didn't recognize the Messiah that they'd waited for, nor did they connect the scriptures that they read every single Sabbath with their subject matter, which is Jesus. Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures and you have no idea that they actually speak about me, right? If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he spoke of me, right? Jesus says this all the time. So here he's talking to the synagogue and he says, look, you know, you who live in Jerusalem, you know, rulers, they didn't recognize him, know the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Now look at verse 28. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. So catch this. Even in their unbelief, they didn't have a reason to put Jesus to death. Even in their unbelief, there was no reason for Jesus to die. Okay? So even if they didn't accept him as Messiah, he still wasn't guilty of death. That's the whole point. And yet, they did it anyway. Now mark this, verse 29. When they had carried out all, catch it, that was written concerning him. So in their blinded, veiled, hardened in unbelief, and sovereignly hardened, of course, state, they still carried out all God's will, and he accomplished everything he intended to accomplish. So even in their rejection of the Messiah, even in their hardness of heart, even in their continued hardness, the Lord accomplished his will through the hardness of the hearts of the men of Israel. Okay, so it's a marvelous thing to think about. I mean, they're unwillingly obeying God's word and doing exactly what the prophets have said. So that's got to infuriate them, too. They just were led along doing exactly what the Lord wanted them to do. And that's not surprising to us. Very surprising and hard to hear for them, okay? So I pick up right there. So he says, verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. Now, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 31, for many days he appeared to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. So these guys who believe, these guys who knew what was going on, they're the witnesses you've been hearing about, and they're the ones wandering around. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. In other words, the good news isn't new news. 
This is the same news it's always been. You just missed it. You were hard-hearted and stiff-necked and you wouldn't obey and now you're sovereignly hardened. But this, this uh, good news isn't new news and Paul is imploring these Jews in this synagogue to see what the veil has obscured all along and what it was still obscuring from the hearts of those who participated in the actual crucifixion of, of Jesus and what was this good news that was so obvious to everyone with the exception of those who refused to see? Verse 33, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it was also written in 2nd Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead no longer to return to decay, he has spoken this way, I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35, therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Verse 36, for David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid among the fathers and underwent decay. Verse 37, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. In other words, Remember those passages, Paul, uh, Paul saying? Remember these things you read all the time? They speak of someone besides David, and they speak of someone besides David's son, and they always have. And yes, they are, they are hard to see behind the veil. Yes, they're not clear. But you can see them now. Please see them. That's what he's saying. He says, verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, verse 39, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So this is his consistent word to them. You know, relying on ceremony is what they, they really trusted in because they didn't properly understand the old covenant was to drive them to sin in its moral area. It was so pure the law, there was no way they were going to keep it, and it was going to drive them right to sin and expose their sin and put the standard there, this is sin, and then they were going to say, I can't keep this law and come to God for mercy. See? And it's to drive them to how utterly wickedly sinfulness is and how very high a price must be paid and to see the need of a Savior in the ceremonial area and provide a symbol in the ritual area because they missed all of that, they couldn't comprehend the new covenant. So the Jews of Paul's day refused to see the old covenant purpose, and therefore they couldn't see the new covenant purpose. They refused to recognize their own sinfulness and their bankrupt state, and so when you do that, you just maximize on legalism. I'm just going to be good. See, Catholic Church is full of people who are just like that. They won't recognize their sinful state, and they're just going to go through the steps to see that they're righteous, regardless of what they do in the, in the regular outside world. As long as you come in and do the certain steps, you'll be good. See? So it's not so far-fetched as we think. And every other religion in the world is somehow connected in that respect, that we're going to do so many good things, and then God is obligated to take care of us. See? But here Paul says, listen, you know, the Jew of Paul's day refused to see the old covenant purpose, even though he's begging them in the synagogues every time. Finally, he just, he's had enough of the stoning and, and the, enough of the casting him out and dragging him everywhere and dragging him to the city center. He's just like, forget it, I'm going to the Gentiles. Right? You're not hearing me. You don't understand what I'm trying to say. You're, you're veiled, you're blinded, and you're still blinded. And every time Moses is read, you're still blinded. You still don't see that, they were, that, that those things speak about Jesus. See. Now, you can flip back to 2 Corinthians 3. <clears throat> so, here, that's where the Jew is. And so Paul in, in City Antioch, that, he just points that out. He says, listen, you fulfilled all the purpose that the prophets had said all along. You did it in your unbelief and your hardness of heart, but you still did it. But you still are blind to it. Now, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16. So here's what it says. But their minds were hardened, and that's a sovereign hardened. We saw that. That's a subjunctive. So that's some other power acting on, acting on the subject. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. But catch this. This is what we skipped over last time because verse 14 and 15 are connected together. But here's the part that he adds here. We'll look at that now, starting right now. It doesn't have to be that way. Why? Look at the phrase we temporarily set aside. But their minds were hardened, for until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. And that's our ninth mark of the New Covenant. The veil of ignorance and unbelief is removed in Christ. So the things which previously prevented them from understanding the true meaning of the Old Testament, the terror and the fear of death, and, and in the face of holiness of God's law, the myriad of laws and the ceremonies and rituals that were unclear, have all been clarified in Christ. The holy demands of God have been satisfied in the moral law and all of the ceremony and all of the, all of the, uh, the, the feast days and all these things fulfilled initially in Christ and will be further fulfilled in Christ when he returns. 
So God's a God of order. He set these things up at the beginning. We'll see them all fulfilled in their final state at some point. But that veil of ignorance and unbelief is removed in Christ. See, the holy demands of God have been satisfied. What was hidden has now been revealed. That's why Paul says this was a mystery, something that was hidden, but now is, is revealed. God is saving men through Christ's blood, the new covenant. Feast days have been and will be fulfilled completely in Christ. Now, as we saw last time, verse 15, so we won't go over it again. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So speaking to Jewish people, they wouldn't submit to God's law. They rebelled against it. Their hearts were hard. Their necks were stiff. And now that they've been sovereignly hardened, so they can't see the purpose of the law or the ceremony or the ritual. But there is hope. Look at verse 16. But whenever, catch this, a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And that's our 10th mark of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is called turning to the Lord. Now, we've seen the New Covenant called the ministry of righteousness, right? We've seen the New Covenant called the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And all those things are very rich in our understanding of what the New Covenant is. But here, it's called turning to the Lord. And this is so rich. I hope you, I hope you enjoy this. So, let's look at those words, just four words in, in, the, uh, in the English. Whenever a person turns, that word turns, epistrepsi. Aorist, active, subjunctive. So the tense is aorist, so at some point, that's the whole idea of whenever, heinika, it's an adverbial conjunction. Whenever, that's where we get the subjunctive state. Do you remember subjunctive, um, there's some degree of contingency there, right? So it's a question of whether or not um, it's actually going to happen. So if this happens, then something else will happen. So whenever a person turns, epistrepsy, to the Lord. So a couple of cool ways to see this. On every occasion, that's the best way to look at it. On any occasion, on every occasion, when a person turns to the Lord, and the implication is from what are they turning, right? And we're going to see that in just a second. But from what are they turning? Well, their sin, their blindness, their rebellion, their wickedness, their hard-heartedness, all all those kinds of things, see? They are are turning, see? And it's active voice. So the subject's participating in the action. This is an act of volition. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, you're like, oh, well, the Holy Spirit has to do it. Give me a second, because Paul follows up with that and lets us know that that's exactly what goes on. Okay, But whenever a person turns to the Lord, that's an act of volition. We've always said in salvation, there's a volitional act. Yes, the Holy Spirit has to bring you to life. Yes, a, a corpse can't do anything, but there's still a volitional turning. It's the part that's missing a lot of times in the presentation of the gospel. And we'll see that in just a second. So... They're turning from their sin. They're turning from their blindness. So continue the thought. Each and every time someone turns to the Lord, that's the volitional part, and then catch this, the veil is taken away. Parareti. Present, passive, indicative. What's that mean? Well, it takes place right at the point of turning. Passive is the subject acted on by something or someone else. Okay. So there's a volitional act, which is what? Turning from your sin, and then there's a sovereign act. What is that? The veil is taken away. You don't come to life on your own. You don't see everything on your own. But the Lord takes the veil away and allows you to see. You see? Present, passive, indicative. So zero degree of contingency. That's the reality. The contingent part is whenever a person turns. So if and when they turn, then what? The veil is taken away. And that's a marvelous picture. It's not Paul's main emphasis, but the words are important here. Those two verbs, super important, I think, for us to understand how this all works. And we've talked about this many times, so it's not new to you. But the veil is taken away. And taken away is a nautical term. I love this. In Acts 27, verse 40, here's the same word, casting off. Now, casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail in the wind. They were heading for the beach. This is when Paul is going to be shipwrecked. Yeah, but the word there, casting off, um, in, the correct, in the correct tense voice and mood for us would be, and they were cast off. Okay? But that word is the idea of loosening something. So here in this passage in Acts 27, the encumbrance for reaching the shore is taken away, so the anchors are cast off. For us, just as the encumbrance for understanding the meaning of the law and the symbols is also taken away, see, at the turning. When, when we, which is as we saw a few weeks ago, that's the proper response to the holy law of God, right? It's recognizing your complete inability to keep it, the bankrupt nature of your personal righteousness, see? Turning away from the bankrupt nature of your personal righteousness. This is what the Jew would not do. 
He's going to keep the law and, and keep, uh, put a fence around the law and keep another set of laws so they don't even come close to the other laws, somehow trying to attain righteousness. You see? But Paul says, no, you have to turn away from that. That's the proper response. See, that was the proper response even in the Old Testament. The proper response in the Old Testament was, I can't keep this law. I come here and I give the sacrifice, but there's no way this could ever cover over my sin and take it away. You know, I, it's just I'm doing it too much. I need your mercy, see? And that's how people in the Old Testament, as we looked at, were saved. They were cast on the mercy of God, and God, by grace through faith, saved them. Banking on what? On the death and resurrection of Christ in the future. It was always about that because all the symbols and all the sacrifice and everything always pointed to Christ. And when they came and they said, God, I can't do this, you've got to save me. There's no way this is going to do this, and I don't keep it perfectly anyway. Then the Lord says, right. That's exactly what the law was supposed to do. The law came to life in your mind. Remember Paul in Romans chapter 7. He says, uh, when the law came to life to me, I died. For the first time I realized I couldn't even not covet. I understood that I wasn't supposed to covet. I'm coveting everywhere. I can't even keep that one. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Christ is going to. Right? See, when the law comes to life, which happens when you say, I'm at the point, I, I can't do this. I'm turning my back on all of this personal righteousness. This is not accomplishing anything for me, you see? That's the proper response. Recognizing your complete inability to keep it. That's the bankrupt nature of your personal righteousness. And casting yourself on the grace of God and asking for forgiveness. Now, before we go on with that, just as a footnote, by way of illustration, I'm reminded, in Isaiah 25, I'll just put it up for you for time. He talks about the Lord, what the Lord's going to do someday, what's going to happen in the future when God exalts himself. We're talking about the veil, we're talking about uh, the not able to see, not able to understand. And this is marvelous, and this is a future state, but Isaiah 25 verse 1, this is a really great passage. I just read it not too long ago in my personal quiet time. He says this, he says, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I'll give thanks to your name. That's a great way to start your prayer, by the way. And these are, there's a lot of great prayer models here. And if you're, if you're reading every day in the, in the scriptures, you, you get these. You, you read that passage and then you go to prayer and you're like, that was a really great way to start prayer. Oh Lord, you're my God, I will exalt you, I'll give thanks to your name. For you've worked wonders, plans formed long ago, perfect, with perfect faithfulness. And then he talks about some of the things God has done in his might uh, in the next couple of verses. And then he gets to verse 3, he says, therefore, a strong people will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will revere you. Now how's that going to happen? Okay, I mean, just think about the world today. I mean, you know, it's certainly not happening now in China, right? It's not happening in Iran. It's not happening in Russia, in, in, the, in South Sudan, hardly, right? I mean, those wicked nations, those, those nations that, um, that uh, are ruthless, they're not, they're, not, um, they're not glorifying God. And then you look at verse 6 of Isaiah 25. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples, on this mountain and he goes on and he talks about some of the wonders of the feast and this is on mount zion in jerusalem and, and he's certainly talking about a great celebration and this must be in the kingdom age and when you go through uh the old testament you realize that they didn't divide up the ages with the spaces that we now know are there right uh, the church age is not mentioned and you know all that kind of stuff so we you have to in discernment you take what you see in the old testament and you you pair that up with what you see in the new testament you realize okay this must be going on at this time this can't be going on now, so there's this future thing going on, see, and he's talking about that. He's going to prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples of the mount on this mountain, and this is the kingdom of age, and this is in Jerusalem, and the Lord's, of course, we know at the end of uh, the tribulation period, he's going to create a great earthquake, and he's going to raise up part of Jerusalem, right, and that's where the kingdom's going to be established. And we looked at all that, as if you've been with us any length of time, you've seen that. So, and salvation has come to some from every tribe, tongue, and nation, obviously. Now look at verse 7, and, the, and on this mountain... Catch this, and on this mountain, mark the language here, he will swallow up the covering which is over all people. And then he clarifies, what are we talking about? Even the veil which is stretched out over all nations. Is there a veil over Iran? I would say yes, right? Is there a veil over a lot of people in the United States? <laughs> yeah. If you've witnessed at all, you realize there's, you go to witness to people, and they have no idea what you're talking about. They have no clue at their own sinfulness and how much they have violated God's law, right? I mean, you've got to start from scratch, you know. Have you ever stolen anything? Uh, well, I mean, even, no, even something little? Uh, yeah, like a pen or, a, you know, whatever. Okay, well, that's one you've broken. You know, have you ever used God's name in vain? Uh, yeah, that's two, right? I mean, you've got to start there. People got to realize they're sinful, right? Have you ever had a, have you ever had a, a sinful thought about a woman? 
Do I have to answer that? You know, that kind of thing. You know, when you're witnessing somebody, it's like, I don't, I don't really want to say, right? But that, that's where you have to start. And, but there's a veil over people, isn't it? And, and he's, as he said, you know, you're going to, therefore, strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will review you. Well, how? Because the veil is going to have to be removed. And so we understand this veil over the entire world is not just on Israel. There's going to come a time when the veil is removed. And, and the time of the redemption of Israel and the nations as fruit of the preaching of the 144,000, they're going to go out and the veil is going to be removed. Why? Because the preaching is going to be effective. The Lord is going to be at work. And there are going to be millions of people who are going to come to faith. The veil is going to be removed. They're going to see Jesus and who he was. And they're going to see their lost nature, uh, the not lost state of themselves. And they're going to come to faith. And so instead of obscurity and, and uncertainty and hostility and animosity, the remnant of Israel and the nations will see Jesus clearly and they'll see the plan of God and the place of the law and the ceremonies and the symbols. And then verse 8 says, and he will then, then he will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He'll remove the reproach from his people and from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. And this is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad of salvation. Now that's a huge change from what we just read that went on in Pisidia Antioch, right? In Pisidia Antioch, they're, like, they're getting mad because he's saying, hey, this is the very person you read about every single Sabbath. And this is the person, even in your unbelief, you did exactly what the prophet said. And they're mad about that see they won't hear that but here it's like now they're saying behold this is our God for whom we've waited how long since the veil was pulled away since the gospel was presented and you understood the place of the law and your own wickedness and all that kind of stuff everything the prophets had foretold and they couldn't see it before see and then Zechariah 12 10 talks about a very similar place a uh, very similar time it says that I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn very similar language from Isaiah right for the first time instead of what happened there in Jerusalem when Jesus was there here they're going to say oh my we're looking on them and we realize we pierced him we did this and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn, see? And that doesn't surprise us, does it? And if you've spent any time witnessing to the lost, you know that apart from the ministry of the Spirit, through the witness of the saints, people cannot see the kingdom or the work of God. It's impossible for them to see it. They may know a lot about it if you read academic circles. They may be able to tell you all about Jesus and, and talk about his life, and it has no power to change them. It's simply academic. And they may or may not believe all the parts, and you hear this, especially around the holidays, I always warn you, you know, all the specials, whatever comes out, it's all, many, many of these are written by unbelievers, and so it's all full of question marks, and did this really happen, and, and all, these, all these key things which are still up in the air. See, why are they up in the air? Because the veil is over their eyes, they can't see their own position before Christ, they don't understand how wicked their sinfulness is, they don't understand the place of the law, or the symbolism, or all the other kind of stuff, and they just make fun of stuff they don't understand, see? It's impossible for them to see it. So they, they can't understand the plan of God, the place of the law. They can't see the truth about God's wrath. And so they just mock God's wrath. or say God must be so vindictive and selfish to be like that. You know, I read a post just the other day. Uh, somebody's post on Facebook is like, oh, a real compassionate, great God who, who condemns hundreds of millions of people to hell. You know, just they haven't connected that. And, and what, what the reason for the condemnation is and that they rest in that group. But they don't have to. But the veil's over their eyes and they can't see. Their understanding is veiled, and, and, and those things themselves are veiled from them. Now, back to 2 Corinthians 3.16. So, talk about the veil being taken away. Sovereignty is going to be taken away through the ministry of the 144,000. We're going to see that all happen. People coming to the Lord. Wicked nations turning to the Lord. A marvelous thing. Now, back in verse 16, it says this, and then we'll move on. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, it's a volitional response, the veil is taken away. That's a sovereign act. And here he's talking about salvation, obviously. See? Turning to the Lord is a term for salvation. Turning from sin to the Lord. There's a great illustration of that in Acts 26, verse 16, where Paul is making his defense to King Agrippa, and he is repeating what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. This is, this is a great passage. So Jesus is relaying this to King Agrippa. Or, I'm sorry. Paul is relaying this to King Agrippa, and... Um, and so he's relaying what, what Jesus said to him, and, he and we're just going to pick up right here because we don't have time for the whole passage. But verse 16, he says, Jesus says to Paul, get up, stand on your feet, 
For this purpose I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things which I will appear to you. So there's going to be more things you're going to learn as I minister through you throughout the course of your life. And then I've already showed you some things right now that changed your whole entire life. Then he says in verse 17, he says, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. In other words, I'm going to, I'm going to appear and uh, I'm, you're going to have a difficult time and these people are going to hate you and they're going to want to kill you. Why? Because they've got a veil over their eyes and they can't understand what you're saying. And they're just going to murder you and be done with it. Okay? So this is going to happen. I've told you some things. I'm going to show you some things. And they're going to hate you. They're going to kill you. And, and uh, they're going to try. But God says, I'll be there for you so that you'll be able to preach the gospel too. Now, this is the point. Okay? Catch this. To open their eyes so that they may, now mark this, here's, here's our word, turn from darkness to light. Again, a volitional response, participating in it. Turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. So that's sovereign. They may receive it. Forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, there is a turning, that's part of the part and parcel of salvation, turning from darkness to light, turning from the authority of Satan to God's authority. All those who have been sanctified by faith, verse 18 says, will turn from their previous life. So Paul says, verse 19, he says, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent. This is great. This is, this is the other volitional part of salvation. It means to change your mind about what you used to do. One has to do with the pattern of action, and the other has to do with what you thought about the past pattern of action. Both of those things are volitional. Do you understand that? This is part and parcel of salvation, see? It's a physical turning from the past. I don't want to do this anymore, and I think what I did was terrible. I was offensive to God, and what I did was offensive to God, and I was rebellious. And you say all the same things that God says about you, you see? It's a physical, volitional turning from the past, right? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sick of myself. I'm sick of my sin pattern. I'm sick of all these things that are a part of this life that I used to live, and a volitional response in repentance, which is, and I hate that stuff. At that point, see, what are you saying to the Lord? Now, you don't come alive apart from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to prompt this all in the individual, okay, through the witness of the saints. Okay, the Holy Spirit's at work doing this, okay? So I'm not saying, you know, a corpse comes to life and says, that's it, I'm tired of being a corpse. No, the Holy Spirit quickens. We, we've gone over that. All right, I don't have to go over that again and again and again. But this is important to understand, okay? To change your mind about what you used to do. So one has to do with the pattern of action, one has to do with what you think about those past actions, and mark the word again, turn, there it is, turn to God. Turning from what? My old pattern of life, turning to God, see? And then Paul clarifies them again in speaking about turning, which he says, performing deeds appropriate to repentance, see? So what's it mean? Turning, and then you start doing deeds that are appropriate to repentance. Why? Because you've been quickened, and the veil's been removed and taken away, and you see God's holy law for what it is, and you see, and now the Holy Spirit is there in, inside of you, helping you, and being as a witness, and a, and a guide, and a comfort, and, and a paraclete, so it comes alongside and just kind of helps you along, see? So it's important to understand, it's, as Paul says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. He's talking about salvation, turning from sin to the Lord, see? And, and I think uh, Paul's recounting of his time in Damascus on the road and, and what Jesus told him is very clear using the same exact words. And we know, you know, the corpse can't do any of that, so apart from the quickening of the Holy Spirit, none of that will occur. But that isn't Paul's point here, so we won't make it our point either. Paul's point is, the new covenant is about turning to Christ. And when that happens, the veil is gone. And there's no more obscurity, see? You look into the face of Jesus Christ, and you see the glory of God, and it's all there. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You, you want to know how God acts? Look at Jesus. See, you want to know how God reacts? Look at Jesus. He's the glory of God, manifest in human flesh, but you'll never look at him and see the glory unless God takes away the veil, and along with doing that, he gives you, along with imputed righteousness, he gives to you the indwelling spirit so that you can begin to have the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding and the revelation that he has made clear in Christ. See, that's what, that, that whole thing is so important. Paul assumes that knowledge for them. You know, when someone turns, uh, turns away, they, they, they uh, when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And that's, 
That's, you know, Paul was with them for 18 months, so obviously he went over and over and over. But when we read it, we don't have that, maybe perhaps don't have that foundation. So we go through that and lay that foundation again, see? And we see that all the way back in 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. When you come to faith, when you, when you turn to the Lord, when you repent and believe, you have a spiritual helper. And you are able to understand the things you previously couldn't understand. Why? Because the veil is taken away, and now the Holy Spirit is there. And these things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. See. Now let's push to the end. Look at verse 17. End of our passage. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, that's our next passage. Way back at the beginning of our section, we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, and this helps us understand what we're reading now. It's not new for Paul to talk to the church about this. So he says this, We have confidence, and such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Remember, we went through that whole message series that had to do with inadequacy, a key to being useful to God. Realizing that you don't have any power in and of yourself and in your flesh, you're not bringing anything to the table that's going to have any eternal impact apart from the Lord at work in you. That's where the glory is. So Paul says, I'm not bringing anything else, not my education, not my background, not my experience. I'm just bringing myself, my redeemed self, and the Lord at work in me can accomplish something marvelous for the kingdom. But apart from that, it can't help happen. But our adequacy, he says, is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. In other words, you're not hopeless. Okay, just because you don't bring anything physical to the table doesn't mean you're not effective. You are effective. You're effective to do the one job he's told you to do. And he's equipped you, so you never have to doubt your calling as you do in the ministry through the power of Christ. You're doing precisely what the Lord wants you to do, regardless of what the reception may be or not. See, because if we look at uh, believers all around the world, you know, they may preach the gospel, and the next thing you know, they know, they're arrested and thrown in jail, right, and tortured. But that doesn't mean they weren't doing the right thing. They, they were, right? Or you may be in a, in, a, in a Western church, and you're preaching, and, and some people just don't like you, all right? Or they, they, they're not listening, or they're in a different spot in their walk with the Lord, and they... You, you're not penetrating that area because they're so far away from where they need to be, they don't even understand, so they might not like it. That doesn't mean you're not doing the right thing. You don't have to doubt your calling. Paul says, you know, God has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Mark this, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And we noted, as we studied this section, that that last portion of verse 6 gives us our first mark of the new covenant. And that is what, it, that's, that it brings life. The new covenant brings life. And I think we could say, okay, so this very first mark of the covenant, the new covenant brings life. I think we could say then, at verse 6, that everything that came after verse 6 was a parenthetical statement. Now, I didn't want to say that at the beginning of, the, of our teaching time back in verse 6. You're like, what? We're going to spend all this time on uh, really what we're considered to be a parenthetical statement. If you read it from verse 6 all the way down to where we are now, I think you can get the picture. He's, he says something, and then it's like, and the footnote to that is, and then everything is, and Paul does this all the time, right? He'll say something, and then explain, 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 and then pick up his thought again. And that's what we're doing here, Okay. So in verse 6, he says, you know, new covenant brings life. And then parenthetical statements from verse 6 all the way down to here, okay? You know, and, and as a footnote or whatever you want to say. And then he says in verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then he says, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. You see, it just kind of flows right into the next, the, the very next thought Okay, so what is this, you know, if they're saying, you know, we're, not, we're adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What, what are you talking about? The Lord is the spirit. The Lord is the spirit. What's that mean? Well, just the Lord is the one in the new covenant. He's the one bringing life. The Lord is the one giving righteousness. And the salvation then through the new covenant is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Paul wants to make that very clear. None other than the spirit who is the Lord himself, right? Father, son, spirit. See, three unique individuals who are one. Okay. So Paul wants his readers to be clear that salvation, any time, okay, whether you're talking about the Old Testament, whether you're talking about the New Testament, salvation based on the new covenant work of Christ, because all salvation is based on that. You understand that, right? Regardless of when you came to faith, whenever God saved you, it was always and forever based on what? The new covenant work of Christ. Whether it was banking on it for the future, or now it's banking on it from the past, right? 
It's always about Christ and his payment on the cross and his resurrection. It's always been. Whatever era it is, whatever you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, salvation based on the new covenant work of Christ, as salvation always is, and we looked at that several times, salvation is always the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is the saving agent. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of regeneration. It's always been that way. And so Paul's just clarifying that. Listen, the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord, through the ministry of the third person of the Trinity, is bringing life and regenerating and is giving something else as well. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I think we get a sense of that uh, as Paul... um, I think we get a sense of that as Paul intended. And and we see in our next mark of the New Covenant, that's number 11 if you're keeping count, that mark is the New Covenant brings liberty. And, And we've looked at this passage so closely over the last several weeks uh, the meanings here, like fruit, will fall off. I hope the branch just fall off the branch for us. When people live under the old covenant in the way some of Paul's contemporaries did, seeking acceptance before God by works of the law, there's no freedom. See, There's no liberty. The demands of the law cannot be fulfilled, and therefore they stand under condemnation. There's no liberty there. There's no wiggle room. There's no freedom. The opposite of liberty, standing under condemnation. Liberty... Eleutheria, that's a Greek noun, means no longer dominated, no longer under slavery, no longer required to do acts to be approved. That's the idea. That's what that word, that compound word means. Eleutheria. Under the covenant of the Spirit, there is liberty. No more remembrance of sin. See? The demands of the law can't be fulfilled under the old covenant. The Spirit of the Lord then gives liberty. Romans chapter 4, 8 says, uh, chapter 4, verse 8 says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It's quoting the Old Testament. You mean the Lord didn't keep account of sin in the Old Testament? Not if they cast themselves on his mercy, right? Not if they cast themselves on his mercy. No condemnation of the sinner, Romans 8, 1. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. There's our word from the law of sin and death. Walking by the Spirit, the righteous demands of the law are fulfilled in us. Beloved, isn't that great? Romans 8, 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. Romans 8, 15, for you have not received the spirit of slavery again, leading to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So that is tremendous liberty. See, not a spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adoption. And when you are redeemed, the Holy Spirit goes to work affirming that relationship. See, that's an incredible benefit. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says to the the church at Galatia, for you were called to freedom, same word as the word translated liberty. You were called to liberty. You were called to freedom, same word. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's the limit to your liberty. You don't turn it into an opportunity for the flesh. Is there any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No. And Paul says, don't turn your liberty into an opportunity for the flesh. Are you condemned? No. Because you have liberty, right? You've been freed by all the things that the law demanded. Why? Because Christ has paid for those. Does that mean you participate in them? No. Does that mean you can do whatever you want? No. But you're free. See? And don't use that as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, as we move into our last verse, and this is one of the most marvelous verses in the New Testament, I think. If you think about this process, uh, this salvation that occurs and is continuing to occur and is brought to completion, this verse 18 really, in my opinion, just kind of sums it up in the most wonderful language of all. But as we move to that last verse, I'm reminded of that Charlotte Elliott poem. Do you remember this, Just As I Am? You probably grew up in a church, maybe they played that 21 times every Sunday, right? I love that. I love that the uh, the song that it was turned into, and I'm not I'm not making fun of that. It's just you know I have the memories of that myself. But verse one says, "Just as I am, without one plea, but that Thy blood was shed for me, and that Thou bidst me come to Thee, O Lamb of God, I come. And just as I am, waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to Thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many conflict." Many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without. O Lamb of God, I come, just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, 
richest healing of the mind. Yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come just as I am. Thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come just as I am. Thy love unknown hath broken every barrier down, now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. And the idea in the poem, of course, is an idea of redemption and transformation, one that continues in so many areas, one where the veil is removed and you recognize all the conflict, you recognize the wretchedness and how poor you are and how blind, right? And you recognize the blood and all those things. And the only fault there with the poem, if any, is what we see mentioned so many times in the New Testament and we see in verse 18, which is, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, not only are we liberated through the new covenant, but Mark 12 of the new covenant is this. The new covenant transforms the believer into the image of Christ. That's the only thing that's missing from the just as I am poem, right? I mean, we understand where we are, our wretched state. We understand the blood was shed for me and you've broken every barrier down and I want to be thine and thine alone. But it doesn't say transform. You know, you can see that she could have written something transformed day by day into the image of Christ. That would have been the perfect ending of that song, verse 7, right? Because that's really what's going on, right? Isn't that what Paul's talking about here? You know, the new covenant transforms a believer to the image of Christ. It doesn't just leave you and then, uh, you know, leave you like you were. And I get, you know, you get sight, riches, healing of the mind, and all that, but still not saying transformed to the image of Christ. That's so marvelous to think about. This is the Lord's intent. As the song says, he cleanses us, he heals us, he quiets our doubts, he calms our fears, he heals our mind, and he will take us to be where he is. Those things are all true, and we are so grateful for all of that. But along with all those marvelous promises we know from Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, catch this, to become conformed to the image of his son so that he, that's Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. The saving, catch this beloved, and you know this, we've said this over and over again, the saving purpose of God, and this should make you sit up and take notice, okay, if you haven't listened the whole time, the saving purpose of God is to create a redeemed humanity who would be like his son. That's the saving purpose of God. I mean, I don't think you could, I don't think you can come away from either of those verses from from 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, or from Romans 8, 29, and, and understand anything else besides that, right? The saving purpose of God was to create a redeemed humanity who would be like his son. And that word transformed into the same image, that word transformed, we've looked at this word, this word before, metamorpho, it's the same word we see in Matthew 17, 2, and he was metamorpho before them, he was transfigured, before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. See, that's a, that's a marvelous thought. We need to move forward here. Transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun. That's the same word. Both verbs are passive. That's important to understand, beloved. You're being transformed. Are you doing that? No, it's passive. That means you're being acted on. You're being acted on by the Lord. He took the veil away. You acted volitionally. When the Lord quickened you, you acted volitionally to turn and repent. He took the veil away. And now he is in the process of transforming you. And even Jesus on the mountain was transfigured. Both verbs in passive. The subject are being acted on by an outside force. And might I add, the same outside force. Okay? The one that transformed Jesus is the same one that's transforming you. Okay? The same outside force is acting see and both are in indicative that means that's the mood of reality see that's going to be your that's your reality for the future in matthew we see the reality of jesus's glory the glory he had with the father from the beginning that's that little snapshot there with three of his disciples who got to see it and they, they all reacted like a little bit differently you know, let's build a house here, you know, whatever, you know, like, they don't know what to say. I wouldn't have known what to say, right? You, you wouldn't have either. Don't pretend like you would have, okay? So 2 Corinthians 3.18, see, 
So they got to see the reality of Jesus' glory, the one he had from the Father from the, from the beginning, okay? All right, no beginning for God, but from the beginning for us in our understanding of God. But he's had that glory all along. They got to see it. They got to see that snapshot. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we see the reality of each day being transformed, and the completion of that transformation is our sure future. See, all who have come to salvation by grace through faith. And the reality of eternity is Christ-likeness, okay? And the reality in time is being transformed into Christ-likeness. So the reality for the future, for eternity, is Christ-likeness. That is your sure future, Christ-likeness. The reality in time, though, as you work your way through your life, the reality in time is transformed into Christ-likeness. See, Paul says, I know what I'm going to be, and I'm in pursuit of it here and now. In Philippians 3.10, he kind of sums that up. He says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's what Paul wants to know. He knows a lot of stuff, but now this is what he wants to know. In order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want to know this, and I know that God is the one who gives this, and that's where I want to be. Not that I've already attained it or have already become perfect. I'm not there. I haven't arrived at Christ-likeness yet. See? But I press on that I may lay hold for that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He intended this from the beginning, precisely what we just saw in Romans 8, 29. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's already planned it all out, see? He laid hold of me for that very purpose. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Beloved, can I say one thing to you? If you would just do that, okay? He's not counting your sins against you. Why are you? Move forward. Get beyond whatever it is that you still hold on to. Paul says, listen, I haven't attained it, and I'm not, I'm, you know, I, I haven't, I'm not there but I'm forgetting what lies behind. I did a lot of bad stuff. I was the, I was the prince of sinners, Paul says. I, I, if you think about people who've done bad things, I'm at the top of the list. I persecuted and killed people who loved Christ. I don't think any of you have done that, okay, that I'm aware of. You may have given somebody a hard time before you came to faith about, about uh, Christianity, right? And you may have ridiculed them like other people do, but you didn't do this. Paul says, I'm at the top of the pile. I haven't laid hold of it. Paul could have spent the rest of his life, oh, man, I killed Christians all the time. I don't deserve... I should be speaking. I killed Christians. What's the point? Right? Paul says, listen, I'm leaving all that behind. Leave it behind, beloved. Okay? The Lord is transforming you. Your future reality is Christ-likeness, and your in-time reality is conformation to the image of Christ. See? And Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm forgetting what lies behind, and I'm reaching forward to what lies ahead, and I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is that Christ-likeness? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. It's all over the place. Now, that's exactly what Paul says here in our passage. So, what are the details? Well, let's look at it, verse 18. But we all, Paul says, we all with unveiled face, who is, what's that mean? Well, that's, um, who is that? Well, Paul's including himself, and he's including the redeemed, right? Those who've been killed by the law and by grace through faith have been brought to life by the ministry of the Spirit and declared righteous by the ministry of righteousness. Everybody who's redeemed, we all. So that just takes in a real broad swath. Everybody who's come by grace through faith to salvation. This is your reality, see? Beholding as in a mirror the glory of, of God. And what's that mean, beholding in the mirror? I don't want you to get hung up on the, whole, on the whole mirror thing. You're not looking at yourself, okay? Like you did this morning, you know? Anybody ever seen one of those ladies' mirrors like, got a curve to it? Like, you look at it, like, you're like an eighth of an inch from the mirror. I mean, it's like, oh, I don't want to see that, you know? It's too close. We're not talking about that, okay? We're talking about a first century mirror, piece of metal, hammered out, polished up, even, even polished as best it could be polished. Still some, still some imperfections, right? You've seen some of these old antique mirrors, you know what they look like. Okay, so Paul says this, we all with unveiled face, what's that? Well, that just means the veil's been removed. Why? Because you're, you're in Christ, and he takes away the veil. When you turn, right, turn to the Lord, the veil's removed. So that's you, okay, beholding as in a mirror. So it just means a close, intimate look. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you're looking at yourself. It means you can gaze at Christ closely, 
Not perfectly yet, right? We see that even in 1 Corinthians 14. I mean, if you think about the mirror Paul's thinking about, it's not exactly, but it's close, okay? And, you know, we don't know what we're going to be, but we will be like Christ, right? And Paul says we're not exactly sure everything that that's going to be because we can't see that perfectly yet. But Paul says, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, right? You gaze at Christ, especially, you know, closer look than anyone in the Old Covenant ever had, right? You get that look closer than anyone in the Old Covenant. They were saved according to the future work of Christ always by the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is the one who regenerates. You get to see it closely. See, Paul's talking to, to this first century group, see? And here in this verse, we're told that we gaze at the glory of the Lord as we focus on the reality of Jesus Christ, God revealed in Christ, demonstrating his glory. As we look at that glory, we're transformed by the Holy Spirit from one level of glory to another, closer and closer to the image that we're gazing at. You see, that's the whole point. You're looking at this image of Christ. It's not perfect image because you can't see that yet, and the Lord has hidden some things, but we know we're going to be like him. We don't know exactly what that's going to be. Paul says we're going to be like him. You're gazing at that, saying you're not going to do that by, you know, by spending your time, whittling your time away every day and missing the word. Okay, we tell you to be in the word every day. Listen, you're gazing into this glory that is Christ as you're in the word. You're getting a close, intimate look every day you spend there, and you get to see that. And we know that all the Old Testament was just looking towards Christ, right? So no matter where you are in your daily quiet reading, you're gazing, and you're looking, and you're learning, and you're being conformed, see? When you were redeemed, you were raised from death to life, and it was a glorious act, see? And this New you is gloriously fit for eternity. So there's some glory already there, see? You were redeemed, and, and there's glory already as part of what has happened to you. And Ephesians 2, 3 says, Among them, we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, including the desires of our flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. You weren't even anywhere near the Savior, see? You didn't look like him at all. You were children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and marked us, beloved, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you know that's your reality? Enjoy that lofty position. That's your place, okay? It doesn't always seem like it as we slog through the world, right? But that is your reality, okay? Positionally, the new you is fit for the kingdom. And God looks at you as if you were already there. That's your spot. He sealed you. You are as sure there as if you were sitting there right now, okay? So understand, that's your reality, okay? It's important to, to get that picture of yourself in, in, in God's sight. You are, your righteousness is satisfied in Christ. It never was about you. The only thing that was about you is you turned and repented, see? And you took Christ's righteousness, and that's what you got, okay? Christ paid the debt for you. So that's your spot. That's you. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. But practically, like the song, you know, God isn't willing to leave us where he found us, like in Just As I Am, see? I mean, he's going to be conforming us, and, and, and that last verse would have been marvelous. And the flesh is still with us and desiring the things it used to desire, so there's been given to us this powerful helper. And so it says, but we with unveiled face, all the redeemed, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, looking intently on Christ, being transformed into the same image. That's so marvelous. From glory to glory, step by step, until finally complete. Just as from the Lord the Spirit. What's that mean? Again, and we've seen this before, just over and over again, it just means this is also from the Lord himself, working through the Spirit. Father says, this, these are the things the Spirit does. This is a reality for you as a believer, all those with unveiled faces, see? So the Holy Spirit is ever increasingly making us like Christ. This, beloved, is sanctification. That's a marvelous work the Lord wants to do in each one that is a believer. And this is the goal of Christian living. The more you focus on the attributes of Christ, as if you're looking in a mirror so very closely at them, what does the Bible say? What's it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Right? You look at the attributes of Christ, you just take on those attributes, the fruit of the Spirit become clearer in your life, and I've been praying that a lot for myself, I hope that you have too. You know, as you go through the fruits of the Spirit, you just say, Lord, I want to see, you know, peace and patience and, you know, all of those things, just, you want to see that, right? The more you focus on the attributes of Christ as you're looking to a mirror closely, the more he will reveal himself in your actions, and God through his Spirit sees this through, see? And I'll leave you with this, and we're done. Philippians 1.6, for I'm confident, Paul says. What am I confident about, Paul? 
that this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He started it, he's perfected it. Paul says, we all with unveiled face, as in a mirror, the glory, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. The Lord's at work in you as you gaze at the glory of the Lord closely into that same image from one level of glory to another. As you mature in Christ, it's just more glory that you reflect from the Lord. Isn't that marvelous? I, I just think that that is, that's one of the coolest verses in the entire New Testament, in my opinion. That sums up in very wonderful language the reality of who you are in Christ. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for the time to spend in your word. We thank you for all who are here to, to just fellowship and encourage one another and bless one another. And, and Lord, for that, we're, we're so thankful. We're thankful for those who are at work downstairs amongst our littlest ones and our, our young people and they're imparting to them uh, the word of the Lord in very clear terms so they can understand what that looks like and you raise them in the way they should go. And Lord, our, our, our trust is that when they're old, they won't depart from it. And Lord, I pray that uh, we too, as we uh, focus on, on a daily basis, beholding the image of your son as in the mirror closely, will begin to be conformed and already are, there's no question, already being transformed into that image. And Lord, we desire that so much. I pray that you'll help us to do that and be more inclined to do that now that we've looked at it than we were perhaps when we came in today. Help us to be more secure in where we are too. The veil's been removed. We've been placed in this most secure position and we don't look back on what the past held. We look forward to what the future holds and we press on towards that mark and help us to press on today, regardless of how the week went last week and how we may have uh, failed miserably and nobody knew that we were a believer except us and you when we got home but we we press on and we and along with that gaze into that mirror so not just you know flailing in the dark but gazing into that mirror that so clearly represents you from your word and then becoming transformed into that image on a day-to-day -day basis that's our prayer today we take that away lord i pray that that will be our commitment and that will be our action we follow up with as we start our monday thank you for this thanksgiving week we ask for your blessings on it for all who travel we ask for encouraging times that the people we bump into will we'll, we'll be able to give grace to, that you'll give us opportunity in the hope that we have to present to them and, and confidently the, the ministry of Christ on their behalf. And Lord, I pray you'll open their hearts, open our mouth, and open your word for them. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.